When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludicrous. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holler at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Black history didn't start with slavery. Slavery is more so the start of Black American history. If we continue to only educate Black children about their history starting from slavery, we're almost just like repeating this story of a Black tragedy. And I think that there's so much value and richness when you kind of look at Black history before slavery, before we were taken from our roots. You know, we're not taught about the kings and queens of Africa, about how we were thriving as a people before we were brought to this country. Hearing about that, for me, that was life-changing. That was inspiring. It ignites a sense of pride. It made me feel proud to be Black. to be Black. to be Black. to be Black. to be Welcome to Wow Black, a seriously opinionated podcast, bringing you the real and raw on anything happening while black. If black culture's there, we're there. If you're pissed or empowered, then let's talk about it. Ride with us on this all black everything. Welcome back, Wild Black family. This is episode two on our powerful words from our past Black History Month series. Today, the Harvard Debate Council Diversity Project is back to take you down a path of discussion, perspective, and enlightenment, all stemming from the speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, by Frederick Douglass. College freshmen Peyton and Xavier, along with high school freshman Naima, are back, but this time they brought the amazing and inspiring Kelly Britton director of the Harvard Debate Council Diversity Project, with them. You may remember Kelly from the Raising Excellence episode last Black History Month. This is the last week you'll hear from this team. But don't worry, next week we have our first surprise guest. And get ready because it's going to be dope, I promise. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about today's episode. All men are created equal in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Two ideals laid out in the Declaration of Independence, which, as you know, was printed on July 4th, 1776, a day better known as the 4th of July. The 4th is a day this country, the United States of America, tends to go all out celebrating their freedom. But that history is challenging to many. How can we celebrate all men being created equal when at that time all men were not? Many would argue that to this day, Freedom inequality still rings loudly. It rings so loud that many people reject the notion of a celebration on the 4th and instead celebrate on the 5th as protest, while even a stronger celebration of Juneteenth on June 19th is the preference for many. These thoughts deliver me squarely to our discussion topic and speech for today. What to the Slave is the 4th of July by famed abolitionist Frederick Douglass. The speech was originally delivered at a moment when this country was fiercely locked in debate over the question of slavery. Much like today, 
as we debate equality, social justice, and yes, even still freedom, as crazy as that sounds. Douglas, who was himself born into slavery, was invited by the ladies of the Anti-Slavery Society of Rochester to address a crowd on July 4th of 1852. But in protest, he refused, opting instead to deliver his now-famous speech on July 5th of the same year. Addressing an audience of about 600 at the newly constructed Corinthian Hall, he started out by acknowledging that the signers of the Declaration of Independence were brave and great men, and that the way they wanted the Republic to look was right in spirit. But, he said, speaking more than a decade before slavery ended nationally, a lot of work still needed to be done so that all citizens could enjoy life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'd argue today that while much progress has been made, there is still much more work to be done. I don't want to hold you any longer than need be. And I've just gotten the signal that Xavier is ready to deliver to you this powerful speech by Douglas. So with that, while black, please welcome back to the mic Xavier and his reading of What to the Slave is the 4th of July. Xavier, shine on, brother. The world is listening to you. Fellow citizens. I am not wanting in respect for the fathers of this republic. The signers of the Declaration of Independence were brave men. They were great men, too great to give frame to a great age. It does not often happen to a nation to raise at one time such a number of truly great men. The point from which I am compelled to view them is not certainly the most favorable, and yet I cannot contemplate their great deeds with less than admiration. They were statesmen, patriots, and heroes. And for the good they did and the principles they contended for, I will unite with you to honor their memory. Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and the natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to all of us? And am I? therefore called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings of those for your independence to us? Would to God, both for your sakes and ours, that a further answer could be truthfully returned to these questions? Then would my task be light and my burden easy and delightful. But who is there so cold that a nation's sympathy cannot warm him? who so obdurate and dead to the claims of gratitude that will not thankfully acknowledge such priceless benefits? Who so stolid and selfish that would not give his voice to swell the hallelujahs of a nation's jubilee when the claims of servitude had been torn from his limbs? I am not that man. In a case like that, the dumb might elegantly speak at the lame man leap as an art. But such is not the state of the case. I say it with the sad sense of disparity between us. I am not included within the pale of glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. Life must mourn. 
truly profound words for, for Frederick Douglass. And I, I think that the most interesting facet is that whenever, whenever we sit down and analyze pieces of history, what we usually find is that the same nuggets of wisdom used then are applicable to today. Um, and I, I just can't stop thinking back to January 20th, 2021, where I, as a black man, was sitting in front of my, my TV and I saw Kamala Harris sworn in as vice president of the United States. And I think about what, what Frederick Douglass said, and he's, he's talking about how the Declaration of Independence it didn't really mean much for black people. And how while America as a whole was celebrating, it really wasn't a victory for us. And so I, I can't stop thinking about that moment. And I want to ask you guys, did you feel like that was a victory when Kamala Harris was sworn in? Or, or really just what counts as a victory for us? I think that's a great question, Xavier. I often find myself asking myself the same thing. We as the Black community get utterly consumed by the excitement of seeing one of us in a position of power that we forget to actually hold them accountable and, and, and to actually make sure that they're going to take action and make change that impacts us positively. And I'm not saying this to say that we shouldn't celebrate the fact that, you know, we're, we're in these positions and we're becoming leaders. But I think that it truly doesn't hold much meaning if no change is going to come from that, if no progress is going to be made. Yes, Naima, I completely agree that we can easily be blinded by what looks like progress. And on one hand, I agree with that. But I also want to bring up the topic that Black people are allowed to have hope. Every time we make a small ounce of progress, we're winning a battle. And perhaps it's unfair to tell Black people that they're not allowed to celebrate until the war is over. Because that war has been going on for hundreds of years. But on the other hand, I don't know if many people know, but Joe Biden and Emmett Till of the same age. And while I sat there plotting the fact that Kamala Harris is the first Black woman vice president, but at the same time, when looking at Joe Biden on that stage, I couldn't help but think he's the same age as Emmett Till. He's in his 70s and he is the president of the United States. At State Farm, we're committed to uplifting Black futures. In collaboration with organizations like 100 Black Men and National Urban League, State Farm provides high school students with the opportunity to learn and apply best practice strategies for saving and investing, all while offering academic support, life skills, and exposure to college access programs to prepare these students for life after high school. Check out 100blackmen.org and nul.org to donate and learn more. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows 
from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. And Emmett Till was dead at 14 years old. So even though I'm rejoiced that Kamala gets to sit next to him, I do find myself wondering, was that a win at all? Who Peyton. I agree with so many of the points you've raised, specifically being blinded by what looks like progress, but also that it may be necessary to celebrate the battles we win versus waiting for the war to be over. Hope is necessary. I, I dare say it's what has allowed us to persist here for so long, you know, to endure. But Xavier, you asked a question earlier. You asked if Kamala Harris being sworn in could be viewed as a victory. And to that, I'd say it felt more like, you know, to me, like the ceiling of a victory more than the victory itself. And and I'll tell you why. So the moment I felt victorious was the night that uh, the election results were certified and the then president and vice president elects gave their acceptance speeches on that stage. The moment that will resonate most for me is when when Kamala Harris took that stage and said, I am here because of the women who came before me, the Black women who made this victory possible. So, you know, as a 40-year-old woman who has seen a lot of, you know, Black firsts over the years, you know, experienced a lot of history, that moment culminated the sacrifices and the challenges I've endured um, in certain spaces because we were acknowledged. Being referred to specifically without dancing around saying Black, you know, women of color, marginalized women, et cetera, you know, she said it in plain terms and without hesitation, you know, and so it was in that that I found victory, the fearlessness with which she gave Black women credit. But of course, it it requires a follow-up question, which then must be, are we just okay, you know, satiated, content with? symbolic victories? And if so, why or why not? What do you all think? If any of you guys are familiar with uh, sort of the analogy that when America was founded, it was sort of like the start of a track race. You know, the race started and Black people were held back at the start. White people, they ran around laps and laps and laps and laps and laps. And then Black people were finally allowed to start running. Um, And that could be equated with uh, the Civil Rights Act or the Emancipation Proclamation or a bunch of different things. But the point is, it took a long time for us to even start to get our footing in America, for us to start even making progress. You know, you say, you know, can we accept symbols as victories? My answer would be yes, simply because we're so far behind. And I think if we choose not to accept it as a victory, then it becomes, are we even catching up? And then it becomes like, what progress are we even making? So I think if we, if we see it as we're in this race trying to catch up, or some people may even argue that we, we're running our own race and we shouldn't be trying to catch up. But if we're in a race and we're trying to catch up and we have these symbolic victories, these, these icons coming throughout time, we have to acknowledge those. Because if we don't, and we just sit around saying, oh my God, we're 200 years behind, we're never going to feel like we accomplish anything. And I think that, that sort of the, the morality boost that comes with, with with seeing African-American president, African-American vice president. That morality boost, it needs to be acknowledged and it needs to be put everywhere because 
you guys have probably seen videos of little black girls sitting down watching Kamala Harris taking the oath of office. That is a symbol, right? And it's not anything official. It's just a symbol. But that's now in their minds about what they can do. And so I think the symbol is very important in terms of us catching up in this race and also inspiring uh, younger generations to go out into the world. Say, I I have to disagree with you a bit. Um, I definitely understand or, or agree with what you're saying about that. There is there definitely is some importance about behind those symbolic victories. But I think that if we start to condition ourselves to just be satisfied with with these symbolic victories, no progress will truly ever be made. As you said, like symbolic victories do have some importance. Like you said, it, it inspires like kind of a sense of morale. But what good is truly going to come from that if they're merely there as just like a symbol or a representative of the Black community, if no change is going to come from that? So I feel like those symbolic victories are definitely a step in the right direction. I just don't think that we should start to normalize saying that's enough. Like, this is a win. Like, we've made it. Coincidentally, I feel like my opinion is between both of yours. Because I want to say that symbols can be victories. But then I started thinking of the opposite. Trump ended up being a symbol for hate, for racism, for sexism. And we should count symbols as victories. And then I thought of the opposite. Trump was just a a symbol of hate. Um, He was a symbol of racism, of misogyny. And instead of taking that as a complete failure, we use it as a catalyst to push forward our own movements. And so I agree with Naima that if we settle into the idea that symbols are win or lose, that we can become complacent. Well, I'll, I'll say this, guys. I, I, I don't know where I, where I fall. Some days the, the symbolism is enough, right? Um, those are days when I'm tired, when I'm feeling spent, when, when the road is, is a tough one to try, right? <laughs> And other days, I'm angered <laughs> by the symbolism because I, I characterize it as just that. And I think, too, it also depends on what the symbol is, right? So every Black first, I think, is a victory, obviously, because it means that there's yet another area or um, space in the world that is now occupied by us, right? That, that wasn't previously. But to Naima's point, I think that for some of us, symbolism becomes the measure. It's the sole measure of progress. My challenge with that is uh, that we have yet to really sit down and look at, you know, the list of what advancement and what progress means. And I think part of that is in looking at how we got here, right? And so the question is, we haven't seen a lot of collective victory. You know what I mean? As far as extensive policy and institutional reform in, say, the last, I don't know, 20 years, 20 to 30 years. And so what happens when you have that lack of collective victory, it becomes more about self. And what that lends itself to is a form, I think, of narcissism within the community where we are so focused on just our own victories, our own triumphs, that we forget that there is a bigger picture and that there should be larger um, shared victories. What do you guys think about that? I completely agree. It's one of the most dangerous threats to the African-American community. When we have a first, 
and they're not doing their job to make sure that there's going to be a second. That is extremely dangerous because then it's, it's like you're making this quote unquote progress, right? You're doing the simple part, which I acknowledge is very important. But if we want to have true progress, you have to, you have to use your position to set up, I guess, a, a lineage to where you have to change the infrastructure to make sure that someone else can come behind you. Because I think what happens is they, they go through all these problems, right? They say, oh yeah, I, I did all this to get to this point, right? I fought all these battles and I did all these different things to get to this point in there. I'm the first black XYZ. But then when they get to that position, their responsibility is to change the infrastructure so that the next person doesn't have it that hard. And I think when black people fail to do that, we end up with a problem. We end up with situations where, I've had these conversations before, we have, you know, icons pass away. They leave us. They go on uh, to the great beyond. And they leave us and we're all sitting here on earth and we don't know what to do. We're like, who's going to run for this congressional seat? Who's going to take this spot next? And so I think the, the thing, the call to action that I would give on this point is if you are a first, if you are a trailblazer, do your job to make sure that there can be a second. Yeah, I agree, Xavier. I think that speaks to how we've chosen to measure progress and how that's not ensuring progress in the future. Because it's not really making a sustainable impact if the work that we're doing now and the change that we're making now isn't going to be affecting future generations to come. The Black agenda needs to be also be inclusive of like aiming for what for everything we want now to, to be representative of what we hope to see in the future. Because if these goals are restricted to, to the time frame of like the present, that's not going to be impacting and affecting our children and our children's children, which I think is like ultimately lacking impact. What's the point if the change that we're making now isn't going to stand in the future? I love your the call to action you brought up, Xavier. And it reminded me of, I was looking at this video of Oprah Winfrey giving a speech after Maya Angelou had died. And Maya Angelou wrote a letter to uh, Oprah called Continue. And I just want to say a little bit, it's just, in a world which needed you, my wish for you is that you continue. Continue to be who and how you are to astonish a mean world with your acts of kindness. When I think about we have these small victories that sometimes can stop us from getting to bigger ones that I hope that we continue. Georgia turned blue and now we have a black person representing us and I hope that we continue. So we can we can have a lot of discussion about what to celebrate and what not to celebrate, but I want to point us back to the words of Frederick Douglass. And he actually went on to answer the question of what to the slave it's the 4th of July in this speech. And I just want to read this for you guys, just, just really quickly. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and quality holler mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with, with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. 
There is not a nation on earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. And so based off that excerpt, you can get a feel of what Frederick Douglass thought about the 4th of July and, and really his perspective on what we should be celebrating and what we shouldn't. And I, I think I can just open up to four of you guys. We're talking about celebrating things in America. Do you guys prefer celebrating African-American milestones like Juneteenth? Uh, or are you someone who does celebrate the 4th of July? Anyone have an opinion on that? My parents are from uh, Texas. And so I've always known about Juneteenth. It's something that we talked about yearly um, for my grandparents weekly. Um, but we always celebrated the 4th of July. And it wasn't until this past year that I felt anger on that day that people were celebrating. And it felt like it wasn't a time for that. In fact, even Juneteenth felt like a day of mourning um, because of how many Black people were being killed and murdered. But I do like celebrating the 4th of July. It makes me feel like an American. But on the other hand, I like Juneteenth because it recognizes how many Black people don't feel that they're American. But 4th of July does make me angry, 100%. I definitely agree, Peyton. I feel like throughout uh, most of my like fondest childhood memories are 4th of July barbecues in my grandma's backyard, you know, with my cousins all like gathered out, gathered out in the backyard looking at the fireworks. And there was just a sense of serotonin and bliss that I got from that day. And it was always one of my favorite holidays. But it wasn't until I got a bit older and kind of learned about the controversy behind it and actually learned that Independence Day truly wasn't for me. That that may be a day of celebration for the freedom of our nation, yet Black people still weren't free because they weren't emancipated. And even today, we're still not 100% free. And I don't know. I, I'm so conflicted about this because... If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. I took pride in celebrating the 4th of July because I, I am an American and it made me feel like a patriot. But now knowing what I know, it feels like a false sense of patriotism because this summer in the midst of everything that was going on, like, you know, I feel like emotions were at an all time high with everything that was happening with Black Lives Matter, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery. There was just so much that was going on and it didn't feel right celebrating the 4th of July, I had a sense of resentment and anger to the people who were celebrating on social media. Like every time I would see people gathered at the beach holding their American flags, it, it triggered something in me. And I couldn't understand why, because that's what, what I would be doing every 4th of July for most of my life. But this year, it felt different. This year, like you said, Peyton, it just, it didn't feel the same. And it felt like we should be taking Juneteenth as more of a day of mourning and that we didn't have a right to be celebrating the 4th of July because it was very apparent that there are so many people in this nation who still aren't free. So why are we celebrating our freedom as a nation if it's not for everyone? Mm. Peyton and Naima, <laughs> valid, okay? Valid. I'm teetering here, y'all. I, I mean, I think I, I am willing to celebrate as long as I am celebrating with context. Let me elaborate on that um, just a little bit. So when you talk about the history of Black people in America, right, our story is a unique one. 
you know, we're talking about groups of people who have been displaced. Obviously, you can't talk about that without talking about the indigenous. Uh, you can't talk about that without talking about the Japanese who are in internment camps, et cetera, right? Uh, but but again, ours is a unique story uh, in that those groups um, have received some form of uh, reparations. We to date still have not. So So again, I am willing to celebrate American holidays with context, the context that they exist because we exist. You know, we fought the wars, the battles, the the, the fights that allow American sovereignty to be a thing, right? So and we built this thing for free. So the victories that this country has experienced are our victories, even though and even when they occur in the midst of our trauma. Again, celebrate with context. I realize that we still, you know, are not exactly where we'd like to be, but we are here collectively because of of Black people. So, I mean, I loved the 4th of July as as a young person, you know, because it was a time of fireworks and barbecues and cute shirts with American flags on it. Even though at the time, I didn't realize that the flag itself was bloodstained uh, with the sacrifices of our ancestors. So, you know, uh, I struggled uh, in my teen years to reconcile that. And now I look at these holidays as a way for us to never get too far from the realities of being Black in America. And I do think that the further and farther away we get from enslavement, uh, the Jim Crow era, we will at some point look back at this time of, you know, police brutality and extreme institutional inequity and be able to celebrate progress from the point at which we are now. But Black people have a responsibility to remember, you know, the history and the strides we've made in this country. And these holidays give us a reason to do so, you know, because without them, and y'all tell me if I'm off base here, if it weren't for the 4th of July and the controversy around celebrating it that you all experienced, um, you know, in the past year, would the tail end of millennials and Gen Zers even know about or acknowledge where we were and how far we have left to go? Do you all think that we need the prompt or reminders that these holidays give, you know, President's Day, celebrating people who were slaveholders or, you know, Columbus Day and the violations against the indigenous? Do you guys think we need these holidays for that purpose? Well, I do. Um, As long as that marker does not serve as a symbol for just outright disrespect, Uh, because, you know, this conversation can be. Um, it's similar to the debate that they have about Confederate statutes. And if you know about Stone Mountain in Georgia, should we be remembering Confederate history and should we be flying their flag? I think that's just outright disrespectful. Like, I think that whole entity was designated towards attacking Black people. So that's disrespectful outright. But when the institution or when the, when the, the day of remembrance, when it's not grounded, um, it doesn't have to be perfect, but when it's not grounded in outright um, assault against people, I think it's okay to have a day of remembrance. But I just think that alongside that, we have to be conscious of the context, like you mentioned earlier, Miss B, just being conscious of the context around it. Um, because I do think it does provide us a way to remember uh, our history. But, but when, it, when, it's, when it's attacking other people, then I don't think there's room for that. I just wanted to say that those days are definitely important to remember the atrocities committed against a lot of people. 
Um, but what I would say is that I think we should be more careful on muddying days of celebration. And what I mean by that is, just like what we've been saying this whole time, there's there's room for duality, right? Like, I would like if the 4th of July could be a day of celebration for being an American, for living in the place of the quote-unquote free, but then Juneteenth can be a day of acknowledgement. And maybe we could do a better job of separating those. Because 4th of July doesn't have to be a day of the dead, you know? It can be a day of celebration, but also one of acknowledgement. I, I agree with you, Peyton. I, I do think that there needs to be some acknowledgement um, of the contrast between the two celebrations. But but let me let me pose this question to you in that sense. And obviously it's ironic because it's Black History Month, right? And, and this is yet, you know, another designated holiday. And there have been questions raised on both sides as to whether Black History Month is still a necessity. So then the question becomes, do we celebrate these milestone events or occasions forever, all of them, or does there come a point in history where we replace the things of the past with new observations for the future that that's, you know, yet another conversation to be had? At some point, does Columbus Day become obsolete? I think the education of later generations has to become a part of our culture instead of something that's necessitated by a month. My mom always talks about how Jewish children know about the Holocaust. They grow up learning about the atrocities of their people and the way that they have, they have grown. And what I've seen or noticed is that Black children very rarely learn about Black history until Black History Month. And so we could do a better job of teaching those children so maybe they can then become obsolete. But what I fear is that if we stop categorizing them into months that, that the history will disappear. There are children at my mother's school, she works at an underprivileged school, that think that Martin Luther King's name is Martin Luther the King, that we have donned him as a king and his last name wasn't King. Just that simple, who knows what could happen in 10 years if we get rid of those, those holidays and things. Uh, I tend to agree with you there, Peyton, as well. Um, and, and here's the reality. Um, I think your example of how Jewish people are raised with a sense of history and given information about the atrocities, you know, that their people have endured, I think it's important to note that some Jewish children go to Hebrew school. And so, yes, they have a section in history books, much like Black folk, where we talk about the Holocaust, uh, you know, in our history classes. But the majority of what they are learning about themselves isn't rooted in trauma or being taught in the school building, it's happening in supplemental educational environments, which, you know, I'll say this shameless plug, you know, the Harvard Diversity Project seeks to provide some of this cultural context. You know, we don't call it African school, right? You know, because that would be crazy, you know, because that's a continent and, and not a country. And, you know, it doesn't speak to uh, just one tribe of people at all, you know, but that's, an, that's another conversation in, in, in another podcast episode. It's important to note that we don't have large-scale installations of schools of Black history, you know, not at the secondary level anyway, across this country. So what you pose is an even greater need, Peyton, to allow Black History Month to be an opportunity to do exactly what we are doing here on Wild Black, which is looking to the future versus it being a consistent reiteration of the same Black figureheads year after year after year, from the time we are in kindergarten to the time we graduate from high school. So the next question is, you know, what is the responsibility of our community to install educational opportunities to learn about ourselves? And when I say educational opportunities, 
um, you know, when we look at history books, the history of Black Americans begins with enslavement, but the history of Black people is much deeper, richer, and extends back further than that. And so where and when is the opportunity for us to learn our true origin story, right? Um, So that poses an even bigger question. Is it okay as Black Americans, because many of us can't trace, you know, our our true origins or, or from whence we came, is it okay that our history here begins with enslavement? Because what other connections do we have to one another culturally without that being the foundation? Miss B, I'm so glad that you made that distinction between the history of Black Americans versus the history of Black people as a whole. And throughout my elementary school like education career, my, my education of Black people was pretty much limited to Black History Month. And during that month, of course, we'd learn about MLK, Thurgood Marshall, you know, like just like the, I guess, the the token Black people that they've decided that these are who will educate kids on and everyone else, like this is enough for them. It wasn't until I got to middle school where I started to learn that Black history didn't start with slavery. Slavery is more so the start of Black American history. And I think that if we continue to only educate Black children about um, their history starting from slavery, we're almost just like repeating this story of a Black tragedy. And I think that there's so much value and richness when you kind of look at Black history before slavery, before we were taken from our roots. But it's so difficult to educate us about that because it's almost like that part of history has been wiped away. You know, we're not taught about the kings and queens of Africa, about how we were thriving as a people before we were brought to this country. But I think that it's so important that we educate kids about that because hearing about that for me, that was life-changing. That was inspiring because of the, it was the first time I wasn't being taught about how bad Black people had it, about how it's so unfortunate that we were in shackles. And then once we were quote unquote free, we had to go through Jim Crow and all this stuff. And for the longest time, it just felt like Black history was a tragedy. And I was just like this. I, w- I was sick of it. I was emotionally drained. And the impact that it had on me when I finally learned that this isn't how it always was, was life changing because I feel like it ignites a sense of pride. It made me feel proud to be Black. And I'm not saying that there aren't gems in Black history starting like Black American history, because of course there are. Of course, Black people have made something out of nothing in this country. But yet still, I think that there's so much value in, in pursuing education that's not just starting um, with the history of Black people from slavery. Wow. Truly profound words, Naima. I cannot agree more. And it's really been such a long journey. Uh, from the shores of Africa to the shackles to the vice presidency to the presidency. It's been a very, very, very long journey. And I'm just so glad that we were able to sit down today and do a bit of reflecting on that. Uh, And I encourage anyone out there listening to have these types of conversations. Think about the past and also think about the future. Um, Because as you see today, we all came about great insights about the experiences of African-American people in this country. And like I say, who knew the words back then could have such an impact on on our lives today? Uh, It's it's extremely profound. I'll say this again. As you sit down and you start looking at history, you start looking at historical speeches, you'll see things start to repeat themselves. You'll see similarities 
and you'll find yourself wiser and more prepared to attack tomorrow. So I encourage everyone, everyone out there to do that. And with that, I want to turn to Peyton. I want to ask her the infamous question. What is your favorite part? I'm going to give you a chance to change your answer. Keep it from last time. What is your favorite part about life while Black? Xavier, I have the worst memory. So I don't know what I said last time. But if it lines up, then that's great. If it doesn't, then I've, I've become a different person. Um, my favorite part about life while Black, I'd say, is that no matter where you go, every Black person you meet knows what it's like to live while Black. You know, like when you go into a store and you see an old Black woman that could be your mother, that somebody understands you, somebody believes you. And that in and of itself, to me, is extremely comforting. Um, but Xavier, I'd like to ask you too, what's your favorite part about life while Black? So it's a combination of what you said. I love just being able to go anywhere and I see somebody, see a Black person, and I'm connected with them. But I also love the haters. I love the, this perception or the, the sort of, I don't love the negative connotation, but I, I'd say I use the negative connotations and all these stereotypes, I use them to my advantage because that gives me an opportunity to show you, prove you, prove you wrong. If you doubt me, I'm going to prove you wrong in every single aspect. And eventually my goal is to not, not have that be a prideful thing. Like I don't ever want to have to worry about stereotypes, but knowing that they exist and knowing that I have the chance to defy them and change them, I really love that. In addition to the sense of camaraderie that exists um, amongst all Black people. And now we want to turn to our special guest, Miss B, and we want to give you another chance to answer the question. Favorite part about life while Black? You know, my favorite part of, of life while Black is this right here. You know, sitting in spaces with brilliant, excellent young Black minds and having conversations that are so relevant to my experience as, you know, what we consider, you know, an old head and your experiences as young, brilliant Black people navigating this world in this space. And I just, you know, sitting with you all just gives me comfort, you know, knowing that the future is in very capable hands, you know, and and I think that's that's the thing. Anyone who loves us, you know, and the celebration of us, and the louding of our accomplishments, you know, to be able to hear young people go so in depth about the the issues uh, that we're facing today, you know, taking the past and being able to relate it to the present and then being able to use that to forge a future that's bright, um, you know, that is life while Black. You know, we have always uh, looked at the mantle of responsibility that we carry, you know, from generation to generation. And, and the three of you carry it effortlessly, appearing, you know, for it to be effortlessly, but you carry it with such style and grace and class. And you understand the necessity of reflection and utilizing that reflection to help change lives, you know, yours and the people who come after you. You know, and and the fact that you all continue to do this and do it with a sense of pride allows me to continue living this life while Black. And so I appreciate each of you. And I'm so very, very proud of you uh, in everything that you all have done and are doing and will do, because it is just an example of the fortitude, you know, the stock from which each of you come. And I, again, am so appreciative that you all have allowed me to sit in with you. You didn't need me, right? But I'm glad that you invited me to come 
because again, being with you just gives me hope. And so if if nothing else, um, that is the the part about living life while black that that resonates most for me. So thank you. When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludicrous. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holla at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. 